14, verse 30, to chapter 15, verse 21. And this will right away also include the text for the sermon, which is from chapter 15. So Exodus 14, verse 30, to chapter 15, verse 21. And after the reading of God's word, let us sing together from Psalm 136, the stanzas 1, 2, 7, 8, and 9. If we read the word of God, there is as follows. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, 
Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. As was indicated, the text for the sermon is our reading, we had in our reading in Exodus 15, the verses 1 through 21. After the sermon, let us sing together from Psalm 96, the stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 8. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you make of the scene described in our text? Because if you think about it, you can almost picture it. We have there a beach covered with dead Egyptians, all their horses and all paraphernalia of war perhaps laying around them. And in the foreground you have the people of Israel. They're just having a great time. They're praising the Lord their God because he drowned all these people. And it's not just the men who seem to be a kind of, you could say, a bloodthirsty frenzy and joy. Because you have the women just as fully involved, dancing with tambourines in their hand, and Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses, urging them on to sing, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has cast into the sea. Now imagine if if this happened today, and it made it into the news. Maybe they'd have some cameras there to also let the whole world see what was going on. Would not the whole world, you would think, shake their heads in disapproval? All those dead bodies. You know, our, our stomachs and our hearts grow weak when we even see these pictures of sometimes you see of all these people fleeing the trouble zones in Syria and other parts of Africa. They try to cross the sea in flimsy rafts and then Don't all make it, sometimes bodies of even an infant washing up on the shore. And we see one body, and we melt, because that is such a tragedy. It is so sad. But here you have the beach full of men, dead. People singing, women dancing with joy. I think the world would say, well, what what kind of people is that? That takes such joy in the disaster that has fallen upon those people. And even more when it says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. People would think, what kind of God is that? What kind of God are these people serving? Now imagine if today was the day that a person decided for the first time to visit a a worship service. And this is the first scripture that was read to that particular person. Because he came because people said, you have to come to church. In church we hear good news. You would think that person might think to himself, did I come to the right place? This is not good news. Where's the exit? I better get out very fast, maybe kind of sneak out. But this is not what I came for. I wanted to hear good news, not story of people rejoicing over all kinds of dead bodies on the beach. But while there may be some negative vibes coming off this scene, Also, this part of scripture is truly good news. 
And we will see this if we take the time to consider the call to sing to the Lord in connection with the crossing, the cross, and the consummation. Now, we begin with the call to sing in connection with the crossing. You could say the immediate context. And if we begin to reflect on that situation, then we would very quickly move from sentimentality about all the terrible scene of dead bodies to reality. Because the reality is that here we have a scenario of either or. If the body, if if the, the beaches had not been littered with the dead bodies of the Egyptians, it would have been the dead bodies of the Israelites. And not just the men, but also the women and the children. Because the previous chapter describes for us how Pharaoh and the Egyptians had changed their mind after they had let Israel go, after the tenth plague especially, with the death of the firstborn. And they went after them with all their power and their might. Israel had just gone on foot. Yes, they were so-called armed for war, but really that didn't really mean too much because here you had Pharaoh with his chariots, all the chariots he could muster, his chosen commanders. You could say in today's terms, here he went after a people walking with all his heavy artillery and his tanks. He was going to crush these people who had left. And now they wanted them to destroy them. For their intent is expressed in verse 9 of our text. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. It's going to be a bloody scene one way or the other, brothers and sisters. And if it had indeed succeeded the way that Pharaoh and the Egyptians wanted, it would have been a great deal messier than the scene we see before us in our text. Because Israel still would have been helpless to defend itself, just like it had been helpless to defend itself when it lived as slaves in Egypt. Because to use a term that is popular today, the intention of Pharaoh and the Egyptians was genocide. To wipe the people of Israel off the face of the map. And now while the attempt by one nation to destroy another people is always evil, we need to keep in mind that the intent to destroy Israel has a unique dimension. Because Israel, unlike the other peoples of the world, was the people that God had chosen for himself. And God had promised that from the people of Israel would come the Savior. Remember, he had spoken about that already way back in paradise, when the first time he revealed that promise after the fall into sin. He'd spoken about the seed of the woman who would come to destroy the seed of the serpent and the serpent. The promise that had become concentrated in the family of Abraham was going to be fulfilled through the nation of Israel. But even when Moses had gone to Pharaoh and said, well, the Lord God says, let my people go. Well, the Pharaoh had said, who is the Lord? I don't care for him. He had completely rejected the revelation of God and God's claim on Israel. And so in that way, Pharaoh had shown himself to be a servant of the ancient serpent, the devil. And that devil and all those who follow him, they only have one goal. And that is to destroy the work of God. To oppose it in whatever way they can. They do not want to see it come to completion. And when God said in paradise that he put enmity between 
the woman and her seed and the serpent and his seed that indicated that really all of history was going to be developing in terms of a constant war and the world would be a constant war zone with the Lord and his promise on one side and the people on one side and those who opposed it on the other side. And the devil is constantly raising up armies. He's gathering people here on earth to destroy God's people here on earth. But at this decisive moment, the Lord shows that he is the one who fights for his people and delivers them from what looks like a sure destruction. We're at this critical moment when the choice was a beach full of dead Egyptians or a beach full of dead people of God who had the promise given to them and through whom would come the Savior of the world. Then the Lord says, now I will show who is the most powerful. And he is able to utilize all his power, able to utilize all of creation to turn against the enemies of his people, indeed to turn against the enemies who are against him. And so when we keep in mind the background of God's words about enmity and paradise, then that war terminology in our text makes good sense. After all, there is a war going on to destroy the work of God. And in that war, God himself takes up the fight for the people he has chosen. It's interesting how in verse 3 it says the Lord is a man of war. We can simply say the Lord is a warrior. He is the one who defends his children. And indeed, that song that was sung after the crossing highlights that the victory is fully his work. In all this, Israel didn't have to lift one finger. It's interesting, if you read later on chapter 14, which actually describes how the crossing took place, chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, then Moses had encouraged the people by saying, the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Isn't that something? You will never see them again. It's not through your work, but the Lord's work. And the Lord had done it by opening a path through the sea, showing his power over the winds, over the waters. He could make dry land for his children to pass through. And then he could just make that path disappear. You know that the Egyptians went in after them. But then as soon as they went in afterwards, Israel was through. The waters came back. Verse 10 we read, they sang like lead in the mighty waters. They were caught in a trap, you could say. It's like the Lord almost ambushed them. He drew them into that path. Then the waters came over them. And that way he destroyed them. It's interesting how chapter 14 talks about the, the wheels kind of getting clogged. Right? The axle seized. The translation is even a bit challenging there. But at any rate, the Lord saw to it that they would never touch his people Israel. They would meet with a watery grave. And the song, therefore, praises God for his miraculous deliverance of his people. And so, you know, there's an emphasis on the Lord, verse 2, for example. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. See, he's the active one. Verse 13, we read, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. 
And in verse 16, Israel acknowledges that the Lord has purchased his people. Because they are his special possessions. He looks after them. And as verse 16, 14 through 16 also bring out, this mighty deliverance is in effect causing the nations around them, the Philistines, the Edomites, to tremble with fear. This is not just an ordinary people. There is someone very powerful behind them. He is fighting for them. And so we see then how by this miraculous deliverance, the Lord impressed upon his people, they were safe under his care. He had shown it in the plagues. He had now also topped it all off by destroying the Egyptian army. You could say as Israel had seen the plagues, if there was any doubt left that God was powerful, well, that should be absolutely clear now. It should have been there before, also when he struck the firstborn. But now seeing this with their own eyes, all those people killed who were out to kill them. It's also a warning to the nations. So comfort for God's people, but warning to the nations. We mentioned the people trembling, you know, 40 years later. When Joshua would lead the people into the land of Canaan, when the spies came to Jericho, then the reputation of the Lord was still out there. Look what kind of God it is who can split the Red Sea, who could split the Jordan. He could add that to it as well. And the people of Jericho, the people of the land, were trembling with fear at what kind of God they were up against. Now, as we think about the Lord triumphing gloriously, we should also notice how this was experienced collectively. By this we mean the people as a whole. And this needs emphasis, the collective aspect of a salvation. It needs emphasis because we live at a time that really puts a lot of stress on the individual Individualism is kind of the slogan of the day, you could say. has been for a long time. And this also works its way through into the understanding of salvation. But Scripture, however, also in our text, teaches us to look at the Lord saving his people, his nation. It is not just that the Lord is collecting, you could say, individuals here and there. No, he is collecting his people. And, and the individual finds his safety and his salvation within the community of his people. And yes, of course, there are individual deliverances, but but the focus in Scripture is on the communal deliverance. That's why also so many of the Psalms will speak about God delivering his people, Israel, his nation. Of course, there are songs stressing the individual as well, but it is always within the context of of God's people as a whole. In that sense, Scripture opposes individualism and makes us see God's people together. It's good also to keep in mind, and for example, we sometimes end up in discussions about contemporary Christian songs. There can be many nice songs, I'm sure, in that, if that's what you kind of like, but we have to ask whether they are balanced or whether they are excessively on the side of the individual, or whether they recognize the communal character of salvation. Is it always about me and the Lord, or is it also songs about the Lord and his people, gathering them, protecting them? Because it is that communal character that will make clear also why warrior language and talk of gloriously triumphing is so fitting 
if you drift to the individual, then you're going to lose touch with that kind of language. You have to see yourself as part of God's people, not just here in the congregation, but of God's people that is being gathered throughout the ages. The people that stand on the side of the woman, as opposed to all the forces on the outside that are against God's people. Now, this whole aspect of seeing the fitting language, of warrior language, of triumphing over the enemies, is also very evident that as we begin to turn our attention to our second point, namely linking this song and the cross. Now, as we begin our second point, I remind you of a key principle in interpreting Scripture, namely that all of Scripture speaks about our salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ even said that himself at one point to the Pharisees, that they were always searching the Scriptures and they thought in them that they had a way of life. But he says, well, they speak of me. They all point to his saving work. And the Old Testament is the story in that respect of how the promise of the seed of the woman, which is pointing to Christ, was fulfilled when Christ came. But as we follow that whole story of fulfillment along the way, we also learn much about the nature of Christ's saving work and the nature of our salvation. For the exodus from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt foreshadowed the exodus from bondage to Satan. And the deliverance from slavery is about our deliverance from, from sin and being made a new people, a new creation. And the miraculous deliverance of Israel, where the people did not have to lift one finger, makes us think of the miraculous deliverance through Christ's death for which we didn't have to lift one finger either. Now, working through with that, moving then from the crossing of the Red Sea to the cross, we can pick up where we left off as we finish that first point, speaking about the communal character of salvation. That comes out already when you think of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Joseph learned about Mary being pregnant, and then he thought, this is, this is not right. And he wanted to kind of quietly divorce her. Then an angel came to him and said, no, 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 take her to be for your wife. And then also he even instructed Joseph, and he said, now, when this child is born, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice that collective, his people. And throughout the New Testament, that that people, that collective aspect continues. The churches are referred to as the church or a church, a congregation of people described by such images as Israel, the true Israel, the New Testament Israel, as an olive tree, a bride, a temple, a body, not the individual, but the people together. But we need to end up, though, in seeing how the word of this song Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea apply to the cross. And that's going to seem rather challenging. Because when you look at the cross, that does not look like a moment of triumph. Rather, it looks like a moment of defeat. There was not, not a, a scene of all kind of dead bodies in 
the background with the Lord Jesus standing triumphantly in front of those dead bodies? No, that was the dead Lord Jesus. There were all kinds of people around. They were rejoicing because Jesus was dead. There were no dancing and singing women. Rather, there were grieving women who saw their beloved Lord Jesus there in all utter humiliation, crucified, slowly dying, that agonizing death on the cross. And they observed it from kind of a safe distance, you could say. So that seems to be the complete opposite of what we are seeing in our text. But we have to recognize that the cross was a moment where God triumphed gloriously. Although we can't see it with human eyes. You have to see it with the eyes of faith. That's what the Apostle Paul writes about, for example, in Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15. He writes that God made us alive together with Christ by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Notice, he disarmed the enemies. He triumphed over the enemies. And that is because, and this is not seen with human eyes, but it is seen with the eyes of faith, that Christ, when it looked like he was defeated, he triumphed. He triumphed over the one, you could say, symbolized in Pharaoh, he triumphed over Satan and his forces. Because our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to do battle with physical horses and riders, but with the spiritual forces of evil. And so there's a moment of triumph. What looks like a moment of defeat is the moment of triumph because there Christ defeated the serpent. And notice all this took place without the Colossians or us ever having to lift a finger. When it happened, actually, no one understood. The disciples had run away in fear. They thought everything was wrong. The women could only grieve. As people, as God's people, we did nothing to help this process along. It is God who did it all in his son, Jesus Christ. We see something similar expressed in Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Because there, the author indicates that through death, Jesus destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice, through death, Jesus destroyed him who has the power of death. And the cross, therefore, gives us reason to sing that God has triumphed gloriously. And based on what he did in Christ on the cross, we can say, the Lord is my strength and has become my salvation. And in other parts of scripture, we find back the terminology, we find in that song as well that you could say, God has redeemed us by the blood of his son, or he has purchased us by the blood of his son. So all the things that were spoken of in Exodus 15, they come back when we look to the cross. Not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. How in Christ we are set free from the devil, free from sin. Now, of course, as we speak about these things, we speak 
the language of faith. Because when God threw horses and riders in the sea, that was very visible. And that gave others reason to tremble. But when it comes to the impact of the cross, that is not visible at all. And as Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, many consider the cross a sign of weakness, of defeat. And so it was a stumbling block to the Jews. They didn't want a savior who died. They wanted a victorious king who would kick out the Romans. They couldn't grasp what God was doing. And for the Greeks, it was folly to think that that there was strength in such weakness that didn't make any sense at all. They thought it was laughable that, that Christians would look to a crucified Christ. And so in that sense, the cross did not then and still does not make nations tremble or cause them to be dismayed, does not cause people to be filled with terror. But they should, however, tremble with fear. And this comes out when we turn our attention to this song and the consummation. That's our third point. The consummation, of course, that refers to the end of the age. Then all the pieces of God's revelation will come together and all the promises will come to their fulfillment. The end of the age, of course, is described most vividly in the last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation. And if you ever had any doubts whether it is appropriate for the New Testament church to to sing a song that is kind of described in our text and to sing other songs that emphasize the warrior-like character of God, well, that should all be taken away when you read the book of Revelation. Because there you see that indeed the song of Moses is kind of, you could say, referenced, and the whole imagery that is already there, that is found in the book of Psalms, it all comes together. It will indeed give reason to to bring praises to the Lord our God, that he is the warrior who looks after his people, and it should also cause all those who oppose him to tremble, to shake in their boots. Now, we'll hear language, therefore, from the book of Revelation that really echoes the language of our text. Now, before we do that, let's just briefly mention also again the setting of the book of Revelation, how it describes the church in persecution, just like Israel experienced there in Egypt. Notice again the church, the believers communally. And the church is under attack. It's persecuted. Think in that respect of the image we have in Revelation chapter 12. There, There is a dragon, it's the serpent, the devil. And then God's people are portrayed as a woman, a woman who is first of all pregnant, gives birth to a child, so that shows the Old Testament promise of the child finally being born. The dragon can get the child because the child is snatched up to heaven in the ascension. But then the dragon keeps on going after the woman, after the church. And we read there about beasts arising from the earth, And from the waters, you could say that that the devil is throwing everything he has at destroying the people of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. But despite all these attempts, the Lord Jesus Christ rules. And he does that by also sending judgments upon the earth. It's interesting, all those 
bowls, all those seals, all those indications of, of judgment at the hand of Jesus Christ who rules. It's interesting then also that then in Revelation 15, we read about those who had conquered the beast, who had remained faithful, and its image standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hand. And then Revelation 15, verse 3, we read that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So in case you thought, as New Testament church, uh, we don't want to sing stuff like that. Well, they certainly do, as we picture here in the book of Revelation, those saints who have gone before us, those who are waiting for the last day, they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Note that combination there. Note, therefore, also the connection between the crossing and the cross. That was not just made up. The crossing anticipated, foreshadowed the cross. And then they sing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You see here, they are praising God for his just judgments, for all the destruction that comes over those who oppose them, because it's an either-or situation, either them or us, they realize. And they are glad Jesus Christ is looking after them. Now, as the chapters continue in the book of Revelation, it moves beyond judgments in history, you could say, which the world sees even now. Jesus Christ is sending judgments upon the world to the ultimate judgment. Revelation 18 portrays it as the fall of Babylon. In that respect, Babylon in Scripture over time begins to kind of become a symbol for all the forces that oppose Jerusalem, you could say, that oppose God and his work of salvation. And what is significant, as chapter 18 talks about the fall of Babylon, is that it is met with such joy by the people of God. Revelation 19, John hears a great multitude cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, Babylon, who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So there's a scene of destruction. And there are people on the other side standing there rejoicing that they stand in front of that scene of destruction. There are the people of God shouting, Hallelujah! A little further. John hears many others crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Notice that. Hallelujah. That means praise the Lord. In front of that scene of destruction, just like on the after the Red Sea, where the people are praising the Lord here on the end of age, ages, God's people are shouting, Hallelujah, praise the Lord for your might and for your power, for delivering your people. Notice that well. Large crowd at the consummation, praising God because he has triumphed gloriously. And when you read in chapter 19, verse 19, about the beasts and the kings of the earth, with their armies being captured and being thrown into the lake of fire, 
not just the watery grave, but the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest being slain with the sword. You see, in every way that the scene at the crossing of the sea simply anticipates the scene at the end of the age. Because then, then God's work of saving his people, redeeming his people, will come to its completion. In that respect, the scene in our text is simply a rehearsal, a warm-up for that great day. And it should give us comfort, brothers and sisters, to know that. And it should make all those who oppose God and his work tremble in their boots. This is the kind of God they're dealing with. They cannot see that. And they think, ah, we can get away with it. No, this is the kind of God they are dealing with if they dare to oppose him. Now, we don't have a version of this whole song, this whole song sung after the crossing of the Red Sea. But you know, its message is found in many of the Psalms in the Scripture, receiving specific mention in the Psalm we sang, Psalm 136. It's referenced in Psalm 78, 106. But we know that in many other psalms, the theme of God fighting for his people and his victory, his triumph, are constant reasons for praise and a constant source of comfort for God's people. We think of Psalm 48. We think of Psalm 68, which we sang together. Psalm 96, we'll also sing it in a few minutes. Also Psalm 46. You know, Psalm 46, we're not that far after, long after October 31st, the day of we celebrate the beginning of the Reformation with Martin Luther posting his 95 Thesis. But Luther, as well known him, a mighty fortress is our God, it's based on Psalm 46. That, again, a testimony that God is the one who is victorious, the one who protects and defends his people. And indeed, as we look at the crossing of the Red Sea, and then we move on, we look at the cross, and then we look at what will happen at the consummation. We can say, this is our God, and we will praise him, for he has triumphed, and he will triumph gloriously. Amen. <laughs>